0: Pod save the Queen.
1: Hello and welcome back to Pod Save the Queen, I'm your host Anne Gripper and we have a special guest with us this week. I've been interested to talk for a while about the Edward and Wallace story, so I'm delighted to be joined by Alexander Larman who is the author of the new book The Crown in Crisis, which is all about just that really. So Alex, welcome to the show.
0: Lovely to be here Anne
1: it's great to have you with us i mean the first thing i have to ask given the unusual times in which we are living is like how are you are you okay how has the lockdown been treating you
0: (laughs) well it was funny because i was editing the book and doing the last few things like proof edits and so on during lockdown and it's quite bizarre because obviously a book like this is very heavy on research and normally i just go to the library to double check things but it did get to the stage by the end i was having to order books off amazon just to check minor details which was quite unexpected (laughs)
1: Oh well, big big book sale of getting uh passing out all of the uh, of the used up research. But the book has but has come out and it is available. It is available right now. But how did you become interested in in this period of history?
0: Well, my earlier books were set in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, so this is quite a move forward. But it started off as a biography of this man called Subalter Monkerton, who's was a BAP's advisor during the time of the abdication and beyond. And as I looked into Moncton and his fairly extraordinary life, I did realise that the abdication had been the absolute highlight not only of his life, but pretty much of everyone else involved in it. And it was such an extraordinarily rich and dramatic time that I was looking at all the other books that had been published, but I was thinking, surely there's something more to it. Surely there's new material that hasn't really come out. And of course, what I did find is there has been a lot of stuff that's been hidden in archives. that's only just come out into the public domain. And I thought, you know, I can take all of that and come up with an entirely fresh take on the abdication. And of course, what's been fortuitous timing is that at the start of this year, Harry and Megan announced their very own quasi abdication. So it has a completely un, unexpected topicality.
1: Absolutely. And that is very much something that is of huge interest to our listeners and was a big focus for questions. So we will definitely, definitely be coming onto that. I mean, that's that's fascinating that it's, it's come out from looking at someone who was sort of one of the more behind the scenes players in, in the whole picture really. And you don't quite think always about all of those other people who were involved behind the scenes back in, back in the day. But, you know, we all, we all know the ending of the story. Um, well I guess it was the mid, it was the middle really I guess <laughs> kind of the crisis the crisis point but how did how did the romance begin and evolve and and sort of when did those first um feelings well either for, either for your man Monkton or for other people did they start to realize actually this this might all be a little bit more complicated than normal life
0: well, they first met in 1931, and I don't believe it was a great romance. There was no particular spark when they first met. But he was an exceptionally lonely man, and she was somebody who was nothing if not ambitious. So the two of them were united at least by that. And then the royal romance such as it was began in 1934, when Wallace seduced him away from his current mistress. And by the beginning of 1936, when he became king, it was a very advanced relationship he was obsessively in love with her. He was talking about marrying her as soon as he could. She didn't return his feelings the same way. She was nowhere near as in love with him as he was with her. So all the stories that we have about this being a great love affair, is just, they're just not true. And, of course, when you realise things like that, you start unpicking the whole story. And actually, I mean, what I wanted to do in the book was less to tell the story of Edward and Wallace and more to explore the kind of race-against-time aspects of actually saving the constitution from this willful and selfish man.
1: So who, who were those sort of key players operating behind the scenes? And at what stage did they get involved, maybe with conversations of like, are you sure this is a good idea, sir? Yeah. Well,
0: there were lots of people who were trying to steer Edward away. I mean, one person, his Private Secretary, Alec Harding. And of course, a private secretary has loyalty to the office of the Crown, rather than the individual holder. And so Harding absolutely hated Edward VIII. And actually, he should never have been his private secretary because he, he loathed him from the day that he took on the job. But, yeah, but what I wanted to explore was there's all these behind-the-scenes fixers. You've got Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin. You've got the media magnate Lord Beaverbrook. You've got Winston Churchill, who was an ally and supporter of Edward VIII. You've got this whole cast of politicians and courtiers and socialites And what I wanted to try and do is to make sure that each of them had their say because there's this wealth of material like letters and diaries and journals, a lot of which hasn't been published before. And in it, we can really build up a picture of what it was like to be in the orbit of Edward VIII, what it was like to see him on holiday with Wallace, for instance, or just generally what he he was like, because he also ghostwrote what he had ghostwritten for him, this memoir called A King's Story. And obviously while it portrays him in a pretty fictitious light that's a really useful thing to see and so yeah you can have this whole panel of people who were involved first of all in trying to make sure that edward didn't marry wallace when she got divorced in october 1936 then it became an inevitability that he would want to
1: what kind of what kind of a man was he and what kind of a king did people expect him to become
0: well, he was very popular amongst his people because he was the first king who wasn't enthralled to a kind of Victorian idea of duty and respectability, when I mean, his father, George V, very much was. But Edward was seen as, I mean, I think rather like Prince Harry, he's seen as an accessible figure, somebody who liked to drink, somebody who was known to go to nightclubs, somebody who was, he liked jazz, he liked to have a cocktail, he was just seen as a very popular and accessible figure. Behind the scenes, he was completely wretched. He was very lonely. He was sexually—he liked to be dominated by women. And there's this letter that he wrote to one of his mistresses saying, "But you've got to be tough and cruel with me; otherwise, I get appallingly soft and spoilt." And he was obviously a man who was unhappy. First of all, being Prince of Wales, and when he became king, he didn't want to be king. I think that's thing to understand with Edward, but. It was a role that he'd spent his entire life preparing for, but he had no interest in it at all.
1: And it's you, it, that is interesting, that kind of born into this life and what is expected of you but actually deciding that you want a different path and i guess that's where one of the one of the places where people may see similarities with with prince harry so i was trying to think back i literally couldn't even remember quite how everything unfolded in january because it seems you know several decades ago now so <laughs> know, with everything that has happened uh everything that has happened since but you know how harry and megan announced their news that they were going to be stepping back from their senior royal roles. You know, It came out on Instagram. And obviously, there had been some warning signs along the way. There had been, obviously, that famous interview when they were in South Africa and these kind of hints that, I mean, Harry had talked about wanting something different as well from his life and a sense of they were trying to find their place and maybe it wasn't quite working. They'd had this time off before Christmas, but I don't think anybody really expected them to come back and go, kaboom, we're out of here. Not least the Royal family didn't really expect that because then they were, they were kind of scrabbling to, to catch up and make a plan and and work out a way forward for them all. So when it, when this, um, Scenario, kind of similar scenario played out in the in the 1930s with Edward. Was it a, a a bombshell kind of wow kapow moment of nope, not doing it, I'm I'm off? Or how did it all unfold?
0: Well, the big difference, you know, one of the big differences between Harry and Meghan and Wallace and Edward, is that there was no media coverage of any of this until December 1936. Because and this seems extraordinary now, but Beaverbrook essentially coerced his fellow newspaper proprietors into keeping the news of the, of the affair absolutely secret. So when it finally broke in the beginning of December 1926, there was complete uproar and absolute pandemonium. And Edward's a, a argument was, if I can't marry Wallace and remain as king, I will abdicate the throne. But what he got wrong, and what she got wrong as well, was the idea that he could just do so unilaterally. But in fact, you as king had to act. And this is something that I, I really wanted to explore in the book. There is, I think, this, this perception that application is something you can just decide upon. He couldn't decide upon it, because actually a constitutional monarch has to act in a way that he's instructed to by his own cabinet and his prime minister. And if you don't take the advice of your prime minister and your cabinet, the government would fall. So he was essentially in a situation where his I don't care, I just want to abdicate, created an unparalleled difficulty when it came to a constitutional crisis. And obviously in December, when the public at large realised that their king, their beloved king in many cases, was about to abdicate people, staging protests in the streets. I mean, there were literally people holding up placards saying, hands off our king, down with Baldwin, down with the prime minister. So you can see it's a really, I mean... It was funny, actually, because while I was writing the book, I thought about Brexit, and I thought about a similar sense of country being divided in two. But now I can see that it's a, bit, it's a bigger issue than that, because it effectively changed the whole course in which the monarchy was going. After Edward abdicated to George VI to became king, he was much more dutiful, he was much more like his father. And obviously, because of that, our present queen is, she became queen.
1: And many people would say happily so, and thank 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 goodness for that. Realistically, as a as a good side effect of all of that turmoil that happened, and I think you've given you know you've given a bit of a sense of the uh, people campaigning out on the on the streets and what have you. And it, it's interesting that tension between government and monarchy, and in a sense, as the monarchy was actually creating a load of pain for his government even though he is the boss and they have to come and resign to him and it's all a bit all a little bit circular and in this peculiar setup that we have in in this country maybe but i think it's worth thinking a little bit about what society was like in the 1930s and you know Was Wallace a kind of a a scandalizing figure, or was it, um, was there sort of the glamour and the romance of this sort of, you know, glamorous American lady who had come and won the heart of the future king? Uh,
0: Wallace was off the scale of scandalizing. I mean, it's impossible to exaggerate the extent to which a twice divorced American was seen as somebody polarizing and somebody who was deeply damaging to the institution of the monarchy. However, what you can look at, I mean, there's a lot of letters which exist in the Royal Archives, the National Archives, and so on. And to put it broadly, I mean, it's not an exact science, but the working classes generally didn't mind the idea that the king had a mistress who would one day become his wife. They thought that he, he seemed happy and they wanted him to be happy. It was the upper upper classes, the aristocracy, of the middle classes who were much more opposed to the idea of Wallace, uh, partly on the grounds of social snobbery. I mean, to have been an American in the 1930s was to have been somebody who was seen as vulgar, she was seen as money-grabbing, or she was money-grabbing, so That was fair enough. But she knew that she was... I mean, by the time of the abdication, she's probably the most talked about woman in the world. And the next 50 years of her life, she never stopped being the woman who led a king to abdicate. And even today, I think we have a very ambivalent relationship with Wallace as a society because what I really wanted to do in the book was not to portray her either as this sort of saintly misunderstood figure or as this wicked harridan who stole the king away. She's a much more complex figure than that. So I wanted to You know, go through her letters, go through her own ghost-written autobiography and basically try and talk about what made her tick. I mean, why would anyone be in a situation where you're going to end up causing the king to give up his throne? And my thesis, such as it is, is that she didn't want him to abdicate. And if it had gone on another week or so, she would have renounced him for all time. That would be the end of the crisis.
1: So almost for his own sake... Renounce well,
0: him. yeah. I mean, I suppose it was for her own sake as well. Because when she was initially his mistress, he was giving her these incredibly lavish gifts, but she was being kept out. She was she's been kept out of sight of it. He had these, these stupid, arrogant things like he put her in the court circular, so it became known that she was his most common's friend. And it was you can often see Redwood It's almost an exercise in taking people for idiots and in trying to see how far he could use his royal prerogative until he said it was checked. Because, I mean, I think we've seen this with various members of the royal family today. They don't like being told they can't do things, because ultimately you think, well, I'm Prince of Wales, I'm Duke of York, I can do what I like. And then there has to be somebody who comes to you and says, well, you can't do what you like, because it's either unconstitutional or it's illegal. And that's when there's this difficulty which arises.
1: And you talked about the kind of two extremes that it is very easy for people to be considered. I think, we, you know, we see that quite often that someone is either wicked or saintly. And obviously there are very few people that fall wholly in one or other of those categories. The uh, the the true answer usually lies somewhere in the middle and it may be different depending on what day of the week it is. But what, what kind of an impression did you build up of Wallace and who she was as a person?
0: I can't say I liked her. I can't say that I, I I felt she was somebody that I would have gone on with it if I'd met, because she she was very grand. She was somebody who, she was very much aware of the power she had and the impact that she had on people. And she was somebody who, she, she didn't much care about being liked, and this was something that was absolutely crucial. Because what came across a lot of the time is people, including Monkton, who... I've regarded as a very decent, very honourable man, referred to her as a cold-hearted bitch. And you think to yourself, well, that's probably about right, isn't it? Because she was somebody who was obsessed by money, and she was obsessed by the acquisition of money. So that's in the debit column. But in the credit column, you—it it is impossible to comprehend the weight of what was placed upon her. And the idea that she had to do all these things because Edward Ed, was forcing her to, it's a very difficult thing to, to get your head around because look, at, I mean, this, this took place 84 years ago, which is not a very long time ago in the grand scheme of things. But the way in which ideas of duty and ideas of honour have evolved since then means that we now look at Wallace, I think probably in a more sympathetic way than her peers would have done.
1: So a lot of our listeners were interested in Wallace's intentions. So a few a few questions that I'll kind of group together for you. So Daniel, uh, Danielle, sorry, Daniel, Melroth says, did Wallace really try and stop David from abdicating? Morgan Jean Ellis asks, was Wallace really in love with Edward or did she just love the attention he gave her? And Diana says, how would Wallace have liked things to turn out?
0: Okay, well, I think we can deal with all of those questions quite snappily. Um, the first question so I could just repeat them one by one so I can deal with them.
1: So did Wallis really try and stop David from abdicating?
0: Yes, absolutely. There's definitely a point at which she was very, very keen. We didn't abdicate. What that would have meant for their relationships is impossible to, to gauge. I mean, I'm sure that a lot of people around her would have liked a situation where she just faded quietly into the background. She, she was carried on being his mistress. But certainly she wouldn't be expected to be his wife.
1: Is a lot of responsibility to take on. I mean, it's enough responsibility being the girlfriend or the wife of a royal, but then to be the person who is responsible for making the king abdicate, that is a lot of responsibility to have on yourself and a lot of pressure on a relationship that it should go on and continue afterwards. I think.
0: Yeah. So, which brings us into the idea of did Wallace love Edward? And no, I don't think she did. I think she was flattered by the attention. I think that she enjoyed the idea of the power that she had. But by the cruise that they had in the summer of 1936 on the narlin, there's this first-hand account by Duff Cooper, who was a politician, who was one of the guests. And he, he wrote, she's hard as nails and doesn't love him. And I think that was pretty much it. So he was obsessively in love with her, or at least whatever love means. He was somebody who had these very strong feelings and she became the recipient of these feelings. But no, I don't believe that she particularly loved him.
1: And how do you think she would have liked things to turn out, says Diana?
0: Oh, well, that's, you know, counterfactual is always interesting because I don't believe she wanted to be Queen Wallace. I don't think that was her ultimate goal. I think what she wanted was to have all, all the wealth, all the ability to call on. Because she was given I mean, absurd presents. I mean, she was given gifts of jewellery, which were worth about £100,000 even back then. So heaven knows how many millions that would be in today's money. I think that she wanted the status quo to continue for a long time. I mean, his father died before they were expecting. And it's not impossible if George V had lived another five, ten years. There might have been a kind of tactful renunciation of Edward's responsibility to become king. It would have passed directly to George to, to his brother Bertie who would have become George VI and we would have never had Edward VIII and I think that would have suited one down to the ground because she would have then been another royal mistress rather than the most notorious woman of the age
1: So um, that actually fits quite nicely for Kitty Hublin's question who says how far into the planning of Edward's coronation did they get before his abdication was announced?
0: Quite a long way but the good thing is they could just do most of it for Georgia 6 correlation. So that was quite a useful thing to uh, basically switch over from one to the other.
1: Okay, so let's let's tackle the issue of of the day, the issue of today. Um, so obviously, the most asked question around our listeners was, do you see a similarity between their story and Harry and Meghan? So people have asked it in a few different ways. So Kerry Davis was very um, diplomatic when she just said, do you see any commonalities in today's royal family? Cherry um, Danro said, I've also been wondering if they see any similarities between Harry and Edward. Do they think they'll meet the same fate? And Travelful there says, same questions as above, how does the relationship between Wallace and Edward compare with H&M, American here, and I see too many similarities, sad face with a little tear.
0: <laughs> I think that if you could sum up the abdication in an emoji, sad face with a little tear is probably about right, actually. But in terms of Wallace and Megan and the similarities of the differences, I have thought about pretty much nothing else all the year. Coronavirus has received into the background compared to this because it is the great vex issue for anyone writing about Wallace Simpson when there is this figure who is like Wallace Simpson in a lot of regards, unlike her and others. It's very difficult because what you want to say is, Megan, I think the, the, the key difference is that. Most people didn't like Wallace. She was aloof. She was uninterested in dealing with publicity. She wanted to remove herself from the concerns of everyday life. Meghan is, I think, an arch manipulator of the media. If you look at every single picture of her that's appeared in the press in the last year, last five years, you can see there's a very intelligent sensibility there. She's somebody who knows what she's doing. She's very much... I mean, you can make the comparison between Harry and Princess Diana, and people have made that comparison, I'm sure, with somebody who understands the power of the image. I mean, it's no coincidence that she and Harry used Instagram to announce their own quasi abdication. Do I think that the an analysis between Harry and Edward? Absolutely. I think that in both cases, there are people who had responsibilities that they've fulfilled or not fulfilled, depending on your point of view. I mean, Edward served in the army as well, although he couldn't actually see active service. He was very annoyed about that throughout his life. And I think that both of them have had this ability to connect with the ordinary man. I think to understand Edward fully, you have to see him through the prism of somebody who could talk to people, and it seemed like a, a one-to-one level. But of course, the key difference is that Harry was a very unlikely ever to have become king. And so his own abdication now that he's 59, I think, is very different to how it would have been for Edward, because essentially the Harry and Meghan thing is a sideshow. It's a very interesting sideshow. It's a very grandiose sideshow with a lot of human drama in it. But it was never really going to affect the future of the monarchy. Whereas obviously what happened with Edward did affect the future of the monarchy.
1: And how how would you compare the two reactions? Because I think there is that you know there is always that romantic feeling of uh, he loves her so much in both cases that they're willing to give up all this sort of life of privilege and you know sort of riches and and power. But actually, there's also actually they weren't very happy and they've got, they've been he she has enabled him to escape a fate that was not of his choosing and um you know and find a different purpose in life if you like but i think so i think with harry and megan as well though there were a lot of people who because you know they'd come into royal life as a couple and worked so rapidly you know they were a bit of a whirlwind getting involved with so many causes they talked about the change they wanted to drive and making a difference and and had started to get involved with things and people had you know, me included, had hopes of seeing what they would do as part of the royal family, modernise it, change it, and and evolve it. So I think for a lot of royal watchers, maybe it's maybe it's just me projecting onto them. There is that sort of feeling of disappointment of I had these hopes and dreams for you, and now you're not going to fulfil them for me. Damn you! <laughs> um, so what was you know the kind of the reaction? then and and now, how do you feel that compares?
0: I think there was enormous disappointment back then when Edward adapted cases. I think that people felt that something vital had been taken from them. And if you were to take a I didn't really have opinion polls back the way we do now, but if you were to take a poll of Edward's popularity, it would have gone from absolutely sky high through to something which was much, much lower. And I think that yeah, I mean I don't know if there have been any recent Uh, Opinion polls about Harry and Meghan, but she is uniquely unpopular with so many people who I speak to. I mean, people absolutely hate her with a vitriol, which actually quite surprises me, because it's very odd when you have somebody who is a public figure who people can reserve this absolute hatred for. And over and over again, it's hatred for the same reasons. It's a belief that she's taken Harry away and she's filled his mind full of bad ideas and that he's now essentially abdicated because of her. And do you think, well, is that a bit racist? Is that a bit misogynistic? Was that actually a fairly approximation of, of how she's acted? And thus it's similar with Wallace. Was she this demon woman who emerged from America to steal the king? Or was she, in fact, somebody who's in the right place at the wrong time?
1: And I was, I was thinking a little bit about this when you were talking about this earlier, and um, that feeling of whether Wallace was a woman before her time, you know, being hard as nails, you know, as someone who is a woman with a job and independence and a proud sense of of who I am and the opportunities that I would like to take and feel like I, I merit and also aware of the, Ongoing inequalities that exist at at various levels, and sort of thinking, you know, was was Wallace being seen a bit harshly because essentially at that time people weren't ready for a woman who was going yeah. to to demand her own her own way of things, and then actually maybe that's a similar thing with Megan that people still aren't ready for someone who is a a force in themselves, particularly in a role that is perhaps expected to be a bit more you know, a a bit more supplicant, if that's, if that's the right word of, you know, if you're a a princess, if you look at Disney, they tend to be slightly, you know, soft, soft around the edges, let's say. And is it, is it just an old fashioned notion that we have not got over ourselves? And we actually need to say, having women who are, who are strong minded and know what they want is a good thing.
0: Well, Wallace never had any intention of altering the monarchy. She was absolutely disinterested in the idea of doing anything that would have been a constitutional upheaval. Meghan had lots of ideas as to how to change the monarchy. And I think that the, the damning line about her was that thing Prince Harry was reputed to say of her, whatever Meghan wants, Meghan gets. And you can see somebody who was approaching the idea of changing the monarchy as if you were a CEO coming into a failing company to shake it up. And that doesn't work because essentially the monarchy is this, it is more than an institution, it is for many people a way of life. It is something that people I think have this love of this belief in as if it's a religion. And you can't just come in and say, Oh, I, I don't like that, I don't like that, we should change that. Because ultimately you're not going to be listened to. And I think what she found is that she was butting her head against this institution of the monarchy, and she was never going to be able to, to win. And so I think that you have to see Wallace in a different context. But Wallace was done for because ultimately she had tried to gamble and the gamble didn't pay off. With Megan, I think it was more she tried to do too much too fast and then that was impossible. I mean, Maybe if things had been different, maybe if Harry had been a different sort of character, she could have achieved more. Because I can't see that they're going to achieve very much now. I mean, if they're going to be this luxurious exile in... California, which of course has its own parallels with the Wallace's exile in France. But what are they going to do for the next few decades? They're going to use their royal status to essentially favor their nest, so there's no point calling it anything else. And they're going to be in a situation where they will always be former royals. I mean, I don't know what the current state of play is, I and mean, he's still calling himself the Duke of Sussex and she's still calling himself the Duchess of Sussex. But I don't think anyone anymore has any actual belief that they're going to do anything worthwhile on the world stage. And I think that's a real pity because he has done so much already. I mean, it thinks like his invictus gains. But you can certainly look at Harry and see somebody who was very involved in the idea of the monarchy for the twenty-first century. And actually I think he's given up that influence. I think it's a real shame.
1: I think you've just about managed to answer um Jerry Damro's question of whether you think they'll meet the same fate as Edward and Wallace. <laughs>
0: I, yes, I, I think they probably will. I mean, I can't look. At the, at the moment in society, it's very hard to predict anything. I mean, who'd have guessed what we would be coming into this corona pandemic a few months ago? But I think history has a strange habit of repeating itself, first tragedy and then as farce. And I do think that what, many I mean, whether you see it as tragedy or what happened to Edward Wallace, all their just desserts. I do think that Harry and Meghan have very much taken a similar path. And I think that's something that they had... There was no obligation that they take it. It wasn't like it was It was an inevitability. This was made. It was a choice made entirely through their own free will. And I think, whatever the consequences are, at least we can say, well, they did what they wanted.
1: Mm. I think one, one counterpoint I will put is that, you know, a lot of people looking at Harry and Meghan will say, well, outside the monarchy, they've got freedom to engage on some political issues that they really care about, which they might not have had the same freedom to deal with in the same way if they had been still part of the royal family. So, you know, Meghan's address to her alma mater, both talking about the, in the context of Black Lives Matter and encouraging people to to vote particularly when she's known not to be the biggest fan of Donald Trump so it's you know kind of reasonably overtly political that message and then the comments that Harry made recently about the commonwealth as well they're sort of you know they're off the leash they have some freedom and they clearly did have some big plans of what they wanted to do but like so many like so many people the um, <laughs> the coronavirus crisis has thrown that entirely off course and again it may be a question of actually bad time bad timing i know timing was something that you mentioned with um with wallace and edward as well so we will we will see how things all turn out and follow it keenly i am sure um going back to the 1930s um how much of a crisis was it actually because i mean we look we look back at it now and we sort of think it's bit of a story of romance we maybe think of it oh it's a bit of a bullet dodged if you like um we think hooray we've ended up with with the queen and she's been fantastic and done fantastic things for our country over the years um and when we think of wallace and edward for me the thing that possibly remains more problematic than the fact that they said, oh no, I'm not going to be king, I'd rather marry you, that's fine, was the visit to Hitler, the ties with the Nazis, that kind of ongoing, what was that relationship of how they they saw that part of hugely problematic history?
0: Well, I mean, it's no coincidence that my my book actually starts with the Nazis, it starts with a meeting between Ribbentrop, who was the ambassador to England when the abdication happened, and Hitler. And I don't think you can overstate the problems which existed, the idea that Edward was a Nazi sympathiser. Quite literally, he had sympathy for Hitler, sympathy for his aims. And I think that the biggest threat to the institution of, of, the, of the monarchy, possibly the biggest threat to the country, was that there was this thing that Beaverbrook was behind called the King's Party, which was essentially a shadow, unelected grouping of politicians who would have people like Oswald Mosley, and this king's party had come to pass, was essentially listed to keep Edward on the throne. So you would have essentially watched in England in the 30s of this far-right dictatorship coming to pass. Edward would have been able to marry Wallace and call her Queen Wallace. And you can see a situation where Hitler would have done exactly the same things that he did do, and England would have looked the other way, possibly even wanted to ally with him. So that, I think, is the single greatest thing that, that the abdication averted. And I think that, to me, it's one of the great stories that, you know, when there was Chamberlain and peace in our time and all the rest of it, obviously that only postponed the inevitable. But had Edward been king, okay, England would probably never have taken a part in the Second World War, and all of the ensuing damage and devastation would never have happened. But you would also have had the difficulty that Hitler would have been unchecked and the Thousand Year Reich might still be around today.
1: That sounds like a very fruitful area of potential fiction of the what you know that kind of sliding doors moment of what if history had gone down this path or not. I know there is one about um, if England hadn't maybe it has maybe it has already been done. I know there's one that was sort of a, a different path of the Second World War, but I can't remember the name of it now. But maybe maybe you found it in your wanderings on Amazon as you've gone looking for you various research material.
0: Do you um, mean it's C.J. Samson's Dominion? Is that it?
1: Oh, Dominion! Is it Dominion? Yeah, yeah. that's the one. Yes. Yeah,
0: that's it.
1: Um, So, anyway, back to back to real life, sort of, and history. Um, so, probably the second most asked question, and um, particularly as we're thinking about what the long term situation is for Harry and Meghan, is. How did that decision turn out for Edward and Wallace? So Leslie Bishop-Brown is asking, did Edward regret his decision? And the Curious Observer says, were they actually happy together? Do you think Wallace regretted her marriage?
0: Um, Okay, that's a very simple way of putting this. Yes, it was a bad idea. Yes, both regretted it. They had miserable, empty lives for decades. If If you look at pictures of them towards the end of their lives, it's literally like seeing two vampires emerging into the sunlight. And you can just see this absolute misery on their faces, decades and decades and decades of having to be the show ponies, mixing with the glitterati, but always being of just fascination because of what happened in those months in 1936. And Edward was never reconciled with his brother before he died in the 50s. He had a distant relationship with our current Queen. He was always seen as the black sheep of a family. And Wallace, again, so much kept at arm's length. And I find it extraordinary that they weren't allowed to return to England without explicit permission from the monarch of the day. And they were certainly punished for what they did. And I think it was an ongoing punishment as well. So no, I don't think they very happy at all, I think, but the Nazi stuff was spectacularly misjudged. I mean, the idea of a member of a royal family being photographed standing next to Hitler in 1937 when it was quite obvious to anyone what Hitler was. I mean, it's awful because it was an act of such folly and such stupidity, but I think it's actually hurt the royal family on some level for all eternity. I mean, it is extraordinary to think about the absolute idiocy of thinking, oh, I'm going to be photographed next to the Fuhrer of Germany he might be seen as a dangerous despot, but I think he's a really good chap. Really. I
1: don't know. Do you think they ever? Do you think they ever really thought through their decision, or do you think it was a bit sort of rash and spontaneous? Well, I suppose it
0: wasn't really a decision so much as it was forced on them. That after he decided he was going to abdicate, everything else fell into place from there because. <laughs> It's quite an interesting idea, but it was just taken for granted that you could not be an abdicated king and live quietly in your home country, that you had to go overseas. And that seems almost a bit biblical to me, the idea of banishment, that you cannot remain in England if you've ceased to be king. And actually, I think a more lenient and tolerant view would have allowed him to go into a kind of retirement to his beloved house of his Fort Belvedere and see out his years there, because... But certainly a sense of revenge, but certainly a sense that he was being punished for what he did. And Wallace obviously punished along with him.
1: So The Real White Swan asks, did, did Wallace ever want children? Were she and Edward forced to sign, sign some kind of agreement that they wouldn't have children because the firm felt it could jeopardise the line of succession if the British public wanted his heir, his heir to succeed to the throne?
0: Um, well, there's several different takes on this. I mean, the most prosaic well, this is one of us probably a bit old to have children by the time they met. We both were in their 40s, and it was probably not very likely to happen. The second and more prurient view is that she was intersex, that she was born with both male and female genitalia, and that she would not physically have been able to have children even if she wanted to. And then, of course, the last to take on the matter is that their sex life is not a very conventional sex life, but he was known as the little man, can take about what you like. But as I said earlier, his interest to be dominated sexually, I suspect, meant that he wasn't very interested in conventional sex. So yeah, that was probably why we didn't have children
1: interesting and then there was one one listener i think who replied to that comment saying they'd read in some book that she might have had an abortion previously in life in asia and and she'd been left unable to have children so either way um, some area where there's a lot of unknown and we can only and we can only try to guess or suppose um nora in canada asking did wallace do any charity work i don't remember reading about it or seeing it in the papers i'm old brackets she says
0: Absolutely none. Absolutely no charity work whatsoever. They were selfish. They didn't do anything. They didn't do anything for other people. They were just interested in enriching themselves.
1: And Diana says, how did the the Windsors live so lavishly? Uh,
0: (laughs) Well, it was basically a mixture of selling articles and books to America, which was a particularly fertile market, and illegal currency speculation, if you can believe it. Also, he was getting this fraudulent advance from his brother Bertie because he'd lied about his financial situation. He had about a million pounds when he abdicated, which is a mixture of cash and investments, and he claimed to have nothing. So he was given this annual allowance of twenty-five thousand pounds a year, but this was based entirely on lies. I mean, I cannot stress enough what an unpleasant person Edward VIII was. He was he was venal. He was weak. He was quite vicious. He was just somebody who, the more research I did into him, the more I loathed him, which is actually quite a difficult thing to have as a biographical subject.
1: Um, Several questions from what Kate sees. Uh, She says, I've always wondered if and how sincerely the Queen ever forgave her Uncle David. In hindsight, obviously, I'm so glad he did abdicate because it gave us our wonderful Queen, um, some reviews of the book suggest the author seems still upset and harsh on his abdication, perhaps bring up how it all happened the way it should have, and thankfully gave us our current Queen. And she also asks, is it true that they had a bathtub, presumably with no water, full of letters, some of which included letters from the then Queen Elizabeth, suggesting that they had a better relationship than was projected? I should be a reporter with all of these questions, he says, laughing with a tear. <laughs> Splendid.
0: Is, is that another face with, with a tear? Oh,
1: yeah. All the emojis <laughs> on Instagram. Love
0: them. A very little tear there. Um, yes, I mean, it was an interesting, I know the review she was referring to, where the reviewer seemed to suggest that I was upset about the abdication. Um, I was delighted about the abdication. I thought it was the best possible thing that could have happened for the country, I think, that if Edward hadn't abdicated, we would have seen the rise of the fascist, unelected government, We probably would have seen Hitler and that government making an accommodation. So no, I thought it was wonderful, though, that he stopped being king. He's wildly unsuited to being king as well. But I think that what was his relationship with, with our current Queen like? Um, it's very hard to say because one thing, because I was, I was given access to the Royal Archives, which is a tremendously wonderful thing to do to go up to Windsor Castle and to go through these never-before-seen letters. But I didn't see any letters between him and our current Queen, and I suspect because they'd be too sensitive to have them brought out while she's still alive. I don't think they had a particularly close relationship. I mean, I, I think that she's somebody who has always believed so strongly in duty and protocol and the idea of things being a certain way and he didn't so you've got a philosophical difference like that it's quite hard to have the idea that that she'd be writing him these sort of fond letters and actually i think that the first and second series of the crown with alex jennings being absolutely wonderful as the duke of windsor i think gave a very good insight into their relationship i mean the the sneering descriptions of her as shirley temple for instance I think there was not a lot of love lost there, to be honest with you.
1: Rachel Johnson asks, I'm curious about the relationship between Edward and Charles. What kind of advice did Edward give Charles? Has it affected any decisions Charles has made? And is that, I guess, is that something that is in any way public at the moment, or is it similarly held in the archives for future historians to rummage through? I know it's one of those
0: things, isn't it? That there's always going to be time sensitive material in the archives. Um, I would very much question the idea. I mean, again, as you see in the last series of the Crown, that the Duke of Windsor became a sort of mentor figure to Charles because Edward was phenomenally selfish. He was not somebody who was very interested in the idea of helping others unless there was a check attached to it. And I think that any relationship he would have had with Charles would have been very much one of spurious wisdom passed on with a sense of, well, I've done all this. I've, uh, you know, I've lived a life. But... I think Charles has been, you know, been a very sensible figure for most of his life actually. He's made a lot of very wise decisions, which I think will firm up the monarchy when he eventually does become king. And I don't think that taking advice from the only man to have given it up is and have been top of his priorities, to be honest with you. Um
1: Two questions about the end, I guess. So, Annie's Clitchener says, Did they leave a will of the gorgeous jewellery she had, and gorgeous and expensive, in fact? Um, and Adrienne Rutherford says, Who were the beneficiaries of their will since they never had any children?
0: Um, I'd have to check that, but I'm pretty sure that all of their possessions were sold to auction after her death. It was a tab- fabulously extravagant auction which raised millions but no i mean as they didn't have any children i mean I, I i don't think they had close friends or people like that i mean i suspect the money may have turned to the royal family actually because she, she didn't have any living family there may have been distant nieces or something like that but she didn't have any brothers or sisters so there wouldn't have been any close relatives but yes i mean i suspect that I mean, it, most of his letters and documents are now owned by the royal family, so I suspect that probably his money would have gone there as well.
1: Um, and you, you mentioned about the Royal Archive, so Lee Stewart asks, um, did they leave behind letters or diaries that might give us insight into their relationship? And since few of their contemporaries are still alive, what did you mainly use for your research, other than Amazon? <laughs> um,
0: I, well, first of all, there's a lot of letters which exist. I mean, there's a historian called Michael Block who puts some of them in a book a few years ago but obviously there's still letters and diaries which haven't been published before and most of them are in the book. Um, in terms of my research obviously I, I interviewed people who knew them. I mean Philip Ziegler, Edward's authorised biographer, was a really useful source of anecdotes and stories and I had a wonderful audience with him in which he sat down and gave me a very candid opinion about a lot of the people involved in the abdication crisis and i very early in my research, I met Walter Mungerton's daughter-in-law, who's still going. And again, she was able to offer me her opinions about Ed- Edward and Wallace. And so it's it's wonderful to have met these people, because you do feel that they are the last of a generation who have these recollections, because I, I very much hope this is a sign of uh, having done something right. But when I handed the book into my publisher, his first words back to me were, um, I'm going to have to take this to legal to see if I, if, you, if you've libeled anyone. Because obviously a lot of the stories in it are so eye-opening, and as I always call it, marmalade dropping. But actually, but I don't believe a single person who I write about in a book is, is a live I And mean, obviously the Queen doesn't really come into it because she was a young girl at the time of, of the events. And all the people who were intimately involved in, in the application have all died. So one of us died in the 80s, so obviously within living memory. But... She didn't cooperate with other biographers. I mean, Michael Block went to see her and he had access to her letters, but she was suffering quite badly from, from dementia by then. But certainly, yes, it's um, researching a book like this, endless, endless hours in the archives, you know, going all over the country for them. And, uh, you know, it's, something that, it's fascinating. I, I really enjoy archival research because there's always the sense that you might find something new and, and literally revelatory, and I did. One of the major discoveries in the book is about this assassination attempt on Edward, which took place in July 1936. And what I think I managed to do using this memoir written by the would-be assassin is to piece together this whole massive conspiracy involving MI5 and communists.
1: Did you have I was, I was thinking about like archives and it, does it feel a bit like a sort of a treasure hunt? And then you occasionally have a eureka moment when you find some little nugget that you think, oh goodness, this is just going to be the thing.
0: Well, what I always do is I set a kind of relevance test because it's very very easy to get excited by you know the metaphorical laundry list and you think, ooh, I found something that nobody's found before. But when you take a step back, and certainly listeners of this podcast will be interested in some aspects of the application and, and my research, but will be less interested in others. And I always have to think to myself, if this was a listener to *Positive Queen, would they want to know about this? Is this something that's actually going to be interesting for them to read about, or is this just another detail? Because, I mean, the book's about 100,000 words long. It could have been double that length without any difficulty at all but that's 100,000 words of material, which I don't think would have added a huge amount to the story. Also, I mean, could you imagine carrying around a book with 200,000 words, it'd be awesome.
1: <laughs> oh, Kindle, Kindle makes anything possible, if a little bit endless. Well, there a, a good editor is always a good thing. So a shout out now to my editor in the gallery, Daniel Jackson, who always does such a tremendous job. And I don't thank enough for the work that he does. Um, the archives, I mean, obviously it's a slightly tricky position at the moment, but what are your what's your next period of history that you're thinking you might delve into and explore?
0: Well, it's gone so well with this book, and I'm so delighted by how people have responded to it, that I feel, well, you know, stick with it, do something similar. And, uh, you know, I'm not quite at liberty yet to say what I'm going to do next, but I have two ideas, both of which are very closely linked to this book. So hopefully I'm going to talk to a publisher in the next couple of months, and we'll see if, if they're keen on the idea.
1: Oh, well, you can, let, you can let them know you'll be welcome back on Pod Save the Queen, <laughs> if that's
0: anything. Thank you very much. But yes, I mean, there was a lot of material. I mean, some really, really exciting material. But I just couldn't fit in the book because space and the remit of it wouldn't have allowed for it. But let's just say that a lot of the stuff of the Nazis in 1937 has not been written about before, and it would be really exciting to get to that.
1: Oof. Yes, and that, that is a it's a fascinating, fascinating period of history. There are so many different things going on, both in royalty and politics and society, and you know, women's rights, all sorts of things. Um, so, uh, you mentioned the uh, the sort of the the communism and the the conspiracy and and all of those things. Are there any other particular gems? You know, is there is there a particular gem like an unusual one that you really enjoyed sort of discovering that you'd like to share with listeners
0: what i yes what i really liked was i went to the churchill archives in cambridge and i found these wonderful letters written by diana cooper who was a friend of edward wallace and she was a very much she was very clear-sighted about them and she went on this disaster well, it wasn't disaster. she went on this eventful cruise in 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 august 1936 and she wrote these letters to her friend conrad russell And she just records the minutiae of what it's like to be on this cruise with the King of England and his mistress. And there's all these descriptions of how they'd be at dinner parties and she'd start laying into him and he'd he'd just sit there and take it and start apologising to her. And it really humanises them both, actually, because you can see that she is somebody who she'd get fed up with him and that she'd start having rows with him and he'd just sit there and take it all. And you think to yourself, well, that's much more... it's a much more pungent description of their relationship than any, you know, third-hand account is going to be.
1: Well, it has been absolutely tremendous talking to you and hearing about the book and hearing about the past and hearing about the present. I mean, one sort of final question. Um, What do you think the last thing impact has been I guess on I guess we know you know the queen the queen became the queen and and her father before her but other than that what do you think the lasting impact has been of their relationship and that abdication on both the monarchy and Britain as a as a country and the way we see ourselves and the way we see the institution
0: well what I think the royal family were very much enthralled to especially with George V before Edward was the idea of duty, the idea that you did things even if you didn't want to do them because it was your duty. And Edward, who's described as the most modernistic man alive by one of his friends, didn't believe in that duty. He believed in self-gratification. And I think that Wallace was somebody who had no concept of duty, no concept of doing things because you were expected to do things because she wanted to do them. And I think if you look at society now, people don't really have any concept of duty. They don't really have any concepts of doing things because you should. People do things because they want to. And in that, I think that's absolutely heroic individualism. Edward looked forward to the 21st century. He looked forward to an age where people act out on their own desires because they want to, because of self-gratification. I can only imagine what they would have been like on Instagram. I mean, it would have been absolutely hilarious to have seen the endless, endless bling that they would have been photographing. But you can bet that Oliver Wallace would have been an influencer as well.
1: Oh, well, we can build that into our um, new fictional, when if things had gone differently, uh, you know, historic fiction made up. That's Maybe that's my summer project we'll branch out with Podsay the Queen's first novel. Maybe not. Maybe I better do my my real job instead. Um, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely tremendous to run through all of this. And as I said, I had been waiting to talk about Edward and Wallace for a little while and it was very much worth the wait. So listeners, if you have enjoyed our conversation as well, one last shout out for Alex's book, The Crown in Crisis, out now. Do you know how much it is likely to cost our listeners?
0: It is an RRP of £20, but any good bookshop and a few bad ones probably have it for a bit less.
1: Okay. Well, good. Well, uh, if you need some summer reading, it sounds like there will be pretty much as much excitement and uh, entertainment as any, any kind of thriller that you might enjoy on your sun lounger. If you're managing to get to one of those this year or in your garden or on your sofa, indeed. Um, Alex, once again, thank you so much. Do let us know how you get on with your future projects. And if you come across anything that you think our listeners might be interested in, then we would be very glad to have you back on to talk about it and yeah, all the best with your next work.
0: Um, thank you very much. It's been an honour to come on with such interesting questions to answer as well.
1: Oh, yes. Our listeners are tremendous with the questions. I do sometimes wonder whether why I bother with my own. It would be much simpler <laughs> to get them to do it all, all the time. And I'm sure they would give my regular partner in crime, Russell, a very good grilling as well. Um, so, listeners, thank you ever so much for joining us once again. As ever, I hope you're safe and well. And until next time... God save the queen!